Welcome all to Finnerin's Wake. The first century of the so-called New Age, an age whose beginning is fixed by the birth of an obscure Jewish infant in the town of Bethlehem, has come to its close. Just a hair over seventy years ago, this child, now dressed in the raiment of a full-grown man, now stepping forth with avidity and purpose into his third decade of life, suffered a premature end. At the very outset of what might have been a fruitful career, he was charged with impiety, condemned by his co-religionists, apprehended by the authorities and as a result of his radicalism and his sundry transgressions, nailed to a cross. Across this terrible wooden beam, this coarsely hewn pillar of bark, a limp, battered, and exhausted body was ingloriously stretched, with a couple of well-aimed blows delivered by a group of Roman soldiers. Metal stakes were driven through his unresisting hands, out of which the bloody stigmata began to take their pooling shape. His feet were similarly treated, and a prickly crown of thorns enwreathed his drooping head. With a heave and a thrust, the cross bearing this peculiar man was brought into its upright position. There it would stand, firmly dug into the yielding soil atop Golgotha Hill, a small elevation of earth outside the walls of Jerusalem proper. This happened on Friday morning, a fit ending to the Passover festivities in which everyone in that section of the empire partook. Within hours, fewer in fact, than normally expected, the body suspended on the cross was dead. As for this specimen, his end came rather sooner than later. By noon, his mouth was agape and his head folded over. His joints were unhinged to the point of collapse, and his sinews began to succumb to the unkind pull of gravity's force. The crime of which this curious figure was accused, for which he was made to suffer this most torturous and humiliating of punishments, was, among other things, Blasphemy. For this, he was crucified and killed. As a consequence of his messianic pretensions, his ethical teachings, his claims to divinity, his subversion of the state, his unimpeachable purity, and his insistence on bucking every established Jewish trend, 
he was brought before the vaunted Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, from the Greek sitting together, was an eminent body of legal scholars, a Radamanthine council of Jewish clerics, elders and priests by whom judgment on all such matters pertaining to the faith and its preservation was severely doled out. The council had long since become familiar with this prophetic upstart, this rustic preacher of embarrassingly low birth. He was, for the better part of his life, nothing more than an undistinguished carpenter, a boy mysteriously begotten of a virgin womb. But, as of late, he became something of a religious sage, a radical guru and healer behind whom, for reasons unintelligible to more orthodox minds, a fervid and devout group of admirers was gathering. The unperturbed detainee, who was called by the name Yeshua or Joshua, or, as we've come to know it, Jesus, was brought to the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas enjoyed the distinction of being the Sanhedrin's high priest, a very lofty role in that competitive hierarchy of learned Hebrews. He oversaw a trial in which false testimony was included. Such claims were admissible, so long as they worked on the prosecution's behalf. He presided over an event that saw the accused first mocked, and then beaten, rough treatment nowhere to be sanctioned in the proper conduct of the law. And so, its guilty verdict delivered. The Sanhedrin, led by Caiaphas, transferred the condemned to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor responsible for ensuring the stability of Judea and executing the local judiciary's will. In keeping with good Roman custom, to whose soundness and probity many centuries past could attest, Pilate chose as the method of execution the cross. This instrument of death, this means of capital violence, was strictly reserved for non-Romans. It would be unmeet to expose a Roman citizen to the harshness of the elements and the mockery of his fellow men while strapped naked and bleeding to a rickety old cross. A Roman, because Roman, would be much more respectfully and gracefully disposed of. His head would be removed from his neck forthwith, without undue suffering in the privacy of a discreet setting. We fast forward now to the end of the first century. This man, Jesus Christ, has been dead nigh seventy years, yet his memory is still very much alive, and his influence as strong as ever. Those who sought to memorialize his unusual story, writers by the familiar names of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, 
did so with the publication of their extraordinary Gospels. Admittedly, a certain mastery of the Greek language is wanting in their combined scribblings, but the picture they join to create is something to behold. With occasional variation, they tell the story of a boy born to a mother unacquainted with a man's seed. She was a young, studious girl of uncontested virtue, an adolescent in the glory of her bloom whose claim to perfect chastity and undefiled innocence was never, not even for an instant, doubted. Her child's paternity, then surely not human, was therefore alleged to have been something on the order of divine. The child gave his bewildered neighbors many reasons for thinking this daring allegation true. He was precocious and flaunted an intellect equal to that of any hoary Jewish scholar. He performed miracles and suspended the laws of nature without so much as breaking a sweat. He restored well-being to the infirm and life to the deceased. He multiplied fishes and transformed water into wine. Most importantly of all, though, he suffered for our sins. He consented to die for the purpose of saving our souls and acquiring eternal life. At least this is what a great many people in the provinces, and also in Rome, have come to believe. The year is A.D. 113, and this race of zealots has earned something of a reputation. They're commonly called Christiani, or Christians, for their devotion to the man called Crestus, or Christ, the same figure about whom those four obscure authors once wrote. Christ's message, faithfully conveyed through the many pages of their work, for he, like Socrates and our countryman Epictetus, wrote nothing of his own conception down has proven especially resonant with the lower classes of society and especially with the women. The wretched and the indigent have responded with enthusiasm to a preacher who dares to put them first. Among the impecunious, Christianity finds its most ardent followers and its most devout congregants. The kingdom of heaven, it's said, will be theirs to keep, a supreme gift to the poor deliberately withheld from the rich. The latter might enjoy the temporal spoils of the here and now, but the much greater bliss, the Empyrean forthcoming, will be the exclusive privilege and enjoyment of the former. The women of the empire appear likewise to be susceptible to the seductions of this novel creed. 
in its sacred doctrines, they find an improvement to and an elevation of their modest station, a role quite inferior to that of the men next to whom they toil. They come to the realization that they too are deserving of dignity, and, irrespective of their sex, are equally worthy of receiving the boundless felicity of this man Christ's infinite love. But how are we to deal with this strange new cult? By what means are we to check the peculiarity of its rites? Sure, we've heard dark tales of its members' cannibalism. They openly admit to eating in the form of an unleavened wafer their savior's flesh and drinking in the form of consecrated wine, the blood of their deity. And the foul, incestuous relations in which they are said to engage but how are we to address them? If, indeed, they're taking place, how are we to limit these perversions, halt these unnatural acts, and restore the preeminence and well-being of the state? Or are these even crimes at all? Are these not merely the customs of yet another sect, the likes to which our empire is so famously accommodating. Having never been present at any trials concerning those who profess Christianity, I am unacquainted not only with the nature of their crimes or the measure of their punishment, but how far it is proper to enter into an examination concerning them. These were the types of questions asked of Emperor Trajan by Pliny the Younger, the scholar-turned-statesman who confronted, as governor of Bithynia, the vexing problem of the Christians. The territory over which he presided lay on the Pontic coast, the northeastern part of modern-day Turkey. His correspondence with the Emperor Trajan was as elegant as it was frequent. In true Ciceronian fashion, Pliny adorned his lines with beautiful language. Lovely words whose musicality suggests that its author intended for their future publication. We, his readers, are the great beneficiaries of his unabashed vanity and his desire for fame. In a letter to Tacitus, a fellow man of letters of great renown, he admits as much. Quote, Nothing, he says, so strongly affects me as the desire of a lasting name. With today's reading, I hope to contribute to the fulfillment of his wish.
Pliny displayed no hesitation in soliciting the emperor for favors and for advice. Whether it be on the topic of architecture, or the raising of statuary, hydraulics, or the building of aqueducts, or the attainment of citizenship for colleagues and friends, Pliny constantly wrote to Trajan, from whom he often received pithy, but altogether friendly replies. The most compelling of their exchanges, though, is that which dealt with the Christians. The religion at this point was still very much in its infancy. The fourth gospel, that of John, was only finished a decade ago, and the burgeoning creed was still in the process of understanding itself. Far was it, indeed, from convincing an entire continent to convert to its new and immature faith. Before it still lay many years of establishing its structure, agreeing to its dogma, appointing its leadership, and refining the many rough, metaphysical edges by which its complex theology was marked. Pliny's disarmingly candid letter to Trajan fails to probe into these difficult questions, but it does shine light on how Christians were received during this age. With tempered hostility, if I were to choose a single word, but there's a palpable uneasiness and uncertainty about just how severely to treat them. The Christians, at this time, weren't subject to widespread persecution. There was no systematic effort to purge the realm of their presence. In the recent history of Rome, only Nero had carried out this type of policy, of whom every subsequent emperor was very careful not to be imitative. He, of course, blamed the Christians for inciting the massive fire of A.D. 64, by which the city of Rome was almost completely engulfed. The Christians, an execrable race that lived on society's fringe, were easy targets, and were thus accused of having lit the incendiary torch. It was an accusation for which they themselves were set to flame. According to the historian Tacitus, Nero, quote, found a set of profligate and abandoned wretches who were induced to confess themselves guilty, and on the evidence of such men a number of Christians were convicted, not indeed on clear evidence of having set the city on fire, but rather on account of their sullen hatred of the whole human race. They were put to death with exquisite cruelty, and to their sufferings Nero added mockery and derision. Some were covered with skins of wild beasts, and left to be devoured alive. Many, covered with inflammable matter, were set on fire to serve as torches during the night." 
End quote. Trajan, a relatively moderate emperor, unacquainted with such depths of Neronian depravity, did no such thing. Instead of declaring all Christians guilty and murdering them without cause, they were tried on a case-by-case -case basis, always within the boundaries of established Roman law. It was Pliny's job to interrogate them and to discern the nature of their belief. Only if, in a fit of obstinacy, they refused to renounce their quasi-Jewish belief and they persisted to affirm, after three chances, their unyielding faith in Christ, were they sentenced to death and killed by the state. An apostate, though perhaps not the most noble of creatures, always had the opportunity to revile his savior and save his own life. With that, I read to you the correspondence between Pliny the Younger and Emperor Trajan on the subject of the proper way to go about handling the Christians. I hope you enjoy. Correspondence number 97, from Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Trajan. It is my invariable rule, sir, to refer to you in all matters where I feel doubtful. For who is more capable of removing my scruples or informing my ignorance? Having never been present at any trials concerning those who profess Christianity, I am unacquainted not only with the nature of their crimes or the measure of their punishment, but how far it is proper to enter into an examination concerning them. Whether, therefore, any differences usually made with respect to ages, or no distinction is to be observed between the young and the adult whether repentance entitles them to a pardon, or if a man has been once a Christian, it avails nothing to desist from his error, whether the very profession of Christianity, unattended with any criminal act, or only the crimes themselves inherent in the profession are punishable, on all these points I am in great doubt. In the meanwhile, the method I have observed towards those who have been brought before me as Christians is this. I asked them whether they were Christians. If they admitted it, I repeated the question twice and threatened them with punishment. If they persisted, I ordered them to be at once punished. For I was persuaded, whatever the nature of their opinions might be, a contumacious and inflexible obstinacy certainly deserved correction. There were others also brought before me possessed with the same infatuation. But being Roman citizens, I 
directed them to be sent to Rome. But this crime spreading, as is usually the case, while it was actually under prosecution, several instances of the same nature occurred. An anonymous information was laid before me containing a charge against several persons, who upon examination denied they were Christians, or had ever been so. They repeated after me an invocation to the gods, and offered religious rites with wine and incense before your statue, which for that purpose I had ordered to be brought, together with those of the gods, and even reviled the name of Christ. Whereas there is no forcing, it is said, those who are really Christians into any of these compliances. I thought it proper, therefore, to discharge them. Some among those who were accused by witness in person at first confessed themselves Christians, but he immediately after denied it. The rest owned indeed that they had been of that number formerly, but had now, some above three, others more, and a few above twenty years ago, renounced that error. They all worshipped your statue and the images of the gods, uttering imprecations at the same time against the name of Christ. They affirmed the whole of their guilt, or their error, was that they met on a stated day before it was light, and addressed a form of prayer to Christ as to a divinity, binding themselves by a solemn oath, not for the purposes of any wicked design, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble, to eat in common a harmless meal. From this custom, however, they desisted after the publication of my edict, by which, according to your commands, I forbade the meeting of any assemblies. After receiving this account, I judged it so much the more necessary to endeavor to extort the real truth by putting two female slaves to the torture, who were said to officiate in the religious rites. But all I could discover was evidence of an absurd and extravagant superstition. I deemed it expedient, therefore, to adjourn all further proceedings in order to consult you. For it appears to be a matter highly deserving your consideration, more especially as great numbers must be involved in the danger of these prosecutions, which have already extended and are still likely to extend to persons of all ranks and ages, and even of both sexes. In fact, this contagious superstition is not confined to the cities only, but has spread its infection among the neighboring villages and country. Nevertheless, it still seems possible to restrain the progress. 
the temples, at least, which were once almost deserted, begin now to be frequented. And the sacred rites, after a long intermission, are again revived. While there is a general demand for the victims, which till lately found of very few purchasers, From all this, it is easy to conjecture what numbers might be reclaimed if a general pardon were granted to those who shall repent of their error. And now, Correspondence 98. Emperor Trajan's Reply to Pliny the Younger. You have adopted the right course, my dearest Secundus, in investigating the charges against the Christians who were brought before you. It is not possible to lay down any general rule for all such cases. Do not go out of your way to look for them. If indeed they should be brought before you, and the crime is proved, they must be punished. With the restriction, however, that where the party denies he is a Christian, and shall make it evident that he is not, by invoking our gods, let him, notwithstanding any former suspicion, be pardoned upon his repentance. Anonymous informations ought not to be received in any sort of persecution. It is introducing a very dangerous precedent, and is quite foreign to the spirit of our age. As I said, from Emperor Trajan you receive a sober but rather pithy response. It's not exactly encouraging when he tells Pliny not to desist entirely from persecuting, punishing, even killing the Christians, but only ensuring that they are Christian. In this way, he shows some forbearance, some respect for the burgeoning religion, but this goes only so far. He certainly isn't averse to inflicting harsh and corporal punishment on this small and radicalized group of people. Though we might look back on this correspondence and cringe, it is fascinating to know the conversations that were being had at this very early stage in the life of Christianity. Pliny, a man of sophistication, erudition, immense learning, wit, humor, elegance, is at an utter loss of what to do with this new grouping of people. To ease him of his burden, he seeks the 
advice of an emperor for whom he has the greatest respect. One can't but marvel at the correspondence between these two extraordinary and historical figures. And with that, my fair listeners, I bid you to go ahead and, in your own time, read the rest of the correspondences between Pliny the Younger and Emperor Trajan. You'll feel as though you're eavesdropping on this historical conversation between, on the one hand, a king, and on the other, a scholar. And with that, I bid thee farewell.